Hello and welcome to episode 154 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and we've got another special episode. Any of the uh, other news that has happened in the last week will have to wait yet again. It'll have to wait. Uh, Last week... Exactly. Uh, there's still a lot to cover. Last week, we took a look at kind of the, the immediate airspace effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how that was affecting commercial aviation, where aircraft could and could not fly, and all of the changes that, that were happening to airlines routing around Russia, where Russian airlines were being forced to stop flying, and kind of th- what was happening in the air. This week, to help us get in, get us some perspective on the rapid tectonic changes that are happening to the aviation industry writ large, we have John Ostrauer, the Air Currents editor, back once again. John, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Good to be back with you guys. So last week, we talked with John Walton about where airplanes could and could not fly and the the restrictions that were coming into force on the airspace and kind of some of the the international regulations around where aircraft could fly. This week, I thought we could focus our conversation on the geopolitical and the aviation business side of things. And I think the, the biggest conversation that we can have right now is about the 500 aircraft that are effectively taken by Russian airlines against the wishes of their owners. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. So the the leasing business has become as as global and as influential as it is because of effectively, you know, look, it's cheaper to lease an airplane, essentially rent an airplane uh, if you're an airline to get rolling quickly. Someone has an inventory of airplanes that they want to get you and they, they manage, whether they're new or used, they can get them to you quickly and you can add capacity. And it's a great way to run an airline. That has been enabled by a lot of international agreements. You know, the, the most notable one here is the Cape Town Convention, where you know Russia is a signatory, the US is a signatory, Ireland is a signatory, Egypt is a signatory. There a huge number of nations have effectively agreed to repatriate aircraft if they are recalled by their owners or that the leases are canceled. It's the foundation of international law, which has enabled the leasing industry to become about 40 to 50% of all aircraft deliveries from Boeing, Airbus, and Embraer and others. This whole situation for the industry completely turns the leasing business on its head. There was just an expectation that that Russia, there was risk associated because it, you know, it was Russia. But I don't think anyone could foresee that you know you'd have a an event where effectively a neutron bomb would would hit the fleet and it was all of a sudden gone. And certainly, given the behavior of the airlines in terms of keep trying to keep their airplanes after the leases have been canceled, looks like that may become a real possibility. It seems like this was so unexpected that Airbus was actually delivering A three fifties to Aeroflot hours and just mere days up until the invasion of Ukraine. And then everything got turned upside down. So this really seems like it came out of nowhere. I believe there was a 350 actually delivered on its delivery flight from Toulouse to Moscow. I believe it was 24, 36 hours before Airbus came out and openly criticized the Russian government and said, we're going to do everything possible to uh, preserve freedom, democracy, and whatever the cost is, we will bear that. 
But again, they had just literally hours before delivered a probably $150 million airplane to Aeroflot. Whether or not that went through a lessor is not clear. I should probably check on that. But it's, it's entirely possible it, 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 it did. Whether or not that lessor will see the airplane ever again, also an open question. Yeah, I looked into it a little bit. I think that one might actually be directly owned. I couldn't find any lessor information. But Aeroflot does also have a number of yet-to-be-delivered A350s sitting at Toulouse right now. So uh, I'm assuming those aircraft will be looking for new owners in the very near future. And absolutely, and and you know, look, and this is not exactly a a golden hour for large wide body commercial aircraft, given the state of the world and the the kind of ups and downs of the pandemic recovery. So it's going to be interesting to see how that one plays out in its own right. So what happens, assuming for the sake of argument, that very few or or perhaps even none of the aircraft leased by Russian airlines are returned to their lessors what is the the legal status of these aircraft that is a great question and that, and because that is actually exactly what the leasing industry is speculating on right now because there's the academic discussion and there's the actual discussion and so right now i believe they've recovered i think i think less than half a dozen that we know about of these 515 airplanes. I'm aware that there are others that are probably being teed up for repossession, uh, which are among smaller carriers, some some smaller freighters that that might be coming out of the system. That is yet to be seen, but there's, I think, a bit more cooperation uh, in some other corners. So it's not going to be all 500 plus, but it's going to be a very, very, very significant number. So what happens to those? You know, in the the insurance industry, it's called a constructive total loss. It's the, the asset is gone. And so in theory, the lessors would be paid out by the insurance companies for the value, book value of the asset. And some of these airplanes are really new, like really, really new. Russia's been on a on a on a heavy tear on fleet modernization with 320 Neos and and uh 350s and 777s that are that are you know factory fresh. And so there's a lot of really brand new airplanes in the in the mix. It's a huge number, and it's and it's definitely in the billions, uh, given what what the exposure is. I think you know, Aircap, which is the the largest lessor in the world, it's become the largest lessor through a combination of mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, they were first with with ILFC, and then more recently with with GCAS as they exited the leasing business. So they become the the big player there, and they have a portfolio of about 150 or so. 140 something airplanes in Russia and whether or not they see them again is a huge 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 open question not just hey are we going to see these again but will insurance cover them and oh by the way did you insure it is the number of the actual book value of the airplane or did they quite cleverly insure also the lost revenues that come with the loss of that asset and there's a possibility that they actually may have so this number gets considerably larger uh, if that ends up being the case so I know there are a lot of actuaries who are probably existing solely on a diet of tums in the last week um, trying to an- answer this question that's pretty incredible so there are aircraft out there that could be flying for realistically decades to come that might be written off as a total loss in 2022. That's kind of insane to think about that. You know, look, this is what happens. This is a casualty of economic warfare. The, you know, people said that a new iron curtain is coming around around Russia. 
uh, given these the, the disconnection to to Western industry to to essentially operating in the the system that they have enjoyed for the last twenty to thirty years after the fall of the Soviet Union. And look, I, I would just note I think this is important on the industry side. We get to have this discussion, and it is a luxury. I mean, this is sort of the the downstream sort of discussion around aircraft operations and the leasing industry and 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 insurance dollars and and, and and disruption around civil aerospace. And that is a luxury, you know, compared to how lucky we are and how fortunate we are to be able to have that conversation relative to the fact that there are people who are in incredible harm's way and are dying under this invasion. And I think it, it's important to put that into, into the right perspective. But certainly with that in mind, thinking about the economic effect broadly, I think is 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 to a lesser importance, but of a significant one as well. Yeah, I, I I don't think and and we we talked a little bit about this last week too uh, in, in our discussion about the airs, but you know the, there are so many other things that are are so much more immediate and important. But we're still going to sit here and analyze and, and talk because this is what we know and this is what we do. And to to jump into not even another lane, but across many many highways to have a separate discussion, I, I want to leave that to to people who who really know what they're talking about. And so that when when people come here, they they get good information about the things that that we know about for sure. The craziest part of all this is because this is a form of economic warfare that we're that we're witnessing. Between and it's the West's response to to this action, and and it's kind of crazy from from my personal perspective. I, I actually I back in college, my senior thesis was about how uh, nations use civil aviation as an extension of national image. And one big part of my thesis really focused on a, how a denial of aviation was part of that as well. And you know, going back to you know how um, Nazi Germany used the Zeppelin as a as a symbol of uh, advanced technology. Mo- most recently, we saw when that Ryanair flight was effectively hijacked by Belarus to arrest a journalist. The first penalty that befell. Uh, Belarus was against their airlines. They they would not be allowed to fly into the EU. So we see this sort of that aviation is so intertwined with nations and geopolitics and national image and denial of that is so key to understanding no, saying no, you cannot be a part of the modern world. And that's what we're witnessing right now from a geopolitical perspective, from a sociological perspective, from an economic perspective. And I think it, it certainly – it writes an entirely new chapter on the scale at which aviation is interconnected within modern life and, and how taking it away has a tremendous effect on a, on a society. Yeah. And on that same topic, since we spoke last week uh, with John Walton – Aeroflot and really all the Russian airlines have pretty much become, not pretty much, they have become domestic operating only airlines. They, they can no longer even operate internationally, I guess, without the risk of the airplanes being repossessed. And John, can you take us through a little bit about what would happen potentially if uh, Aeroflot or one of the other Russian airlines were to try to operate internationally at this point? Yeah. So Aeroflot killed its international network on the 8th of March. That came about a week after the repossessions started or attempted repossessions. And I, and I, and I stress attempted. We had a piece on the air current a couple of days ago about a failed repo operation in Cairo. And it was a, it was a 10-month-old Airbus A321neo flying from Moscow to Cairo. And the airplane, uh, as it's 
flying en route to Egypt over – well, it's over Georgia, the former Soviet Republic. Aeroflot was served papers, effectively saying your airplane is being repossessed and the certificate of airworthiness has been revoked along with the insurance. That airplane at that point needed to be legally speaking based on its registration in Bermuda. By the way, there's another another nation involved in this too. You know, this is a Japanese bank that owns a operates an Irish lessor with a Russian airplane that's on the Bermudan register. So it's 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 a it's a multi-nation affair as the aviation business has always been. And so the airplane lands based on our reporting understand and it's not clear exactly what happened on the ground, but that the Egyptian authorities declined or just looked the other way, or, or we're not exactly sure what happened, but we understand that Egypt, with the full knowledge that this airplane was in contravention of, of its civil aviation regulations, was allowed to refuel, push back, and return to Moscow. And it flew, potentially with passengers, we're not 100% sure about that, it flew with no insurance and no certificate of airworthiness. And that's a paperwork issue fundamentally, but it is, again, in abject contravention to the standards and norms that we've come to know in aviation and why the system is as safe as it is. And it's just incredibly shocking. Well, and and one of the big things that makes civil aviation different than, than so many other industries is the fact that for the most part, Everyone plays by the same rules. Even you know when you're you're talking about countries that that may have less stellar safety records, the rules are still the same. How to maintain the aircraft are still the same, whether the aircraft is in Can- northern Canada, southern Argentina, Antarctica, Russia. It doesn't matter where. I mean, the maintenance, the care. The paperwork, that's all supposed to be the same so that you can take these aircraft from one place to another because that's what they're designed to do and have them be safe no matter where they take off and where they land. So to to do that, I mean, I get the geopolitical impulse and the national interest impulse on behalf of Aeroflot. It I don't think I'm saying that excuses it in the least. Yeah, the, the interesting thing is kind of getting the, into the mind of the Egyptian authorities in this one. And, you know, I think it's twofold. And again, I will fully admit this is speculative, but I think that given the importance of Russian tourists to Egypt, I think not uh, running afoul of, of that flow of people, I think was, was certainly a, a thought process. I think there's also, they also have, I think, two dozen SU 35 fighters. On order with with Sukhoi, and so there are a lot of different moving parts to this. And do you want to get into a big fight over a fifty million dollar asset when you're talking about a a multi billion dollar fighter deal and a huge part part of your your tourist economy? And but at the same time, it also goes to show you that you know, look, Egypt is a signatory to Cape Town, and they are obligated to repossess an airplane. If the lease is canceled and the certificate of airworthiness is canceled, period, that airplane should not be allowed to fly. But as this whole situation has shown us, international law is a thing you do when it's convenient. It does, when it flies in the face of what, sovereign self-interest, it's more, it's a heck of a lot more flexible than it is uh, hard and fast. And and that's that's a that's a very troubling development in its own right 
in terms of an international system that I think the world has sought to to create for a 21st century that is inherently massively more interconnected and interdependent on on itself. So let's continue on that that thread of interdependence. All of these aircraft, especially the the new aircraft, and we talked a little bit about this last week. Um, they're basically large aerodynamically shaped flying computers. And there are so many services beyond being able to get physical parts for these aircraft. I mean, we talked about Boeing turning off charts for operators. We, we've talked about Aeroflot losing access to, to their ticket sales and, and the GDS, but they've also got all of these other service you know, electronic services that go into flying, dispatching, preparing these aircraft. How long can Russian Airlines continue to operate without access to these and then kind of getting into the the, the spare parts process? How, how long can they keep going? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So we talked about how aviation has been used as a weapon of economic warfare and denial of access to aviation. You, know, you go back to 1979, after the uh, the Iranian Revolution and the overthrow of the Shah and what happened to Iran Air, uh, and it operated or has operated consistently ever since, effectively earning itself the reputation as one of the most unsafe uh, markets in the world, given the fact that the fleet is held together with you know bubble gum and and bailing wire to, to some extent because of the embargo that prevented them from getting aircraft parts. There was a there was a brief window during the Obama administration after the JCPOA agreement that allowed Iran to get airplane parts, and they took as many airplanes as they possibly could in a very short period of time. Principally, uh, uh, I think a couple of A three thirties and some ATR seventy twos, I believe, and they it was the first new aircraft to be delivered into to Iran in 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 ages. And then the Trump administration rolls around and that got roundly put on the back burner and the pipeline closed off again. But they made it work. They made it work. They had, they had 747 SPs that were flying you know, well into the last decade. They're 30 plus year old airplanes and they had A300s going for, for ages. And then they got a bunch of, a bunch of airplanes secondhand, which they've sort of you know, been able to cannibalize and figure out a black market for, for, for parts to make it work. The interesting thing about where we see the Russian situation, this is more of a question than than anything I can put my hands on at this moment. If you have a 787 or a 350, and actually there are no 787s operating in, in Russia, but if you have a, uh, an A350 flying in the Russian fleet, when you took delivery of that airplane, did Airbus send along a paper copy of the manuals? I'm willing to bet that 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 all of the maintenance document documentation and all of the, the the appropriate training systems are probably digital. And are were they digital in terms of direct delivery, or were they accessed through a cloud portal? And what is the status of that? I, I, these are questions that I have. And do they even have access to the documentation to take care of these incredibly advanced complex airplanes. It's a small number of airplanes in the mix, but I think it just goes to show you how much airplane maintenance has changed over the years, moving away from a paper process and all that. But you know, you've got a ton of you know 737s and A320s that you can probably find the documentation on. And I would imagine the Russian aviation industry has been 
massively underfunded and held together with bubblegum bubble and bailing wire before. And that was right after the Soviet Union fell. And so this is a return to that in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, there's talk of cannibalizing a lot of, you know, two airplanes for every one airplane that will that will keep flying. And and by the way, if you start cannibalizing those airplanes, you can bet that they will never ever re-enter the global fleet, not just because of, you know, the questionable sort of whether whatever storage or or care, love and care they're getting as part of this cannibalization, but also the records that go with them. And that's even if the, the lessors can actually get access to them again. And by the way, that's a question of whether or not they'll be able to even do business in Russia to be able to, to take them back it's at any point in the future. So, you know, look, this is a business that runs on information and paperwork. And certainly Iran showed us that you can have a, a struggling but operational airline for many decades based on black market of parts, internal you know, repairs uh, done yourself. And whatever you know, spares are in country right now. It's not going to be, you know, they're not going to all fall apart in three weeks, but it's going to happen fairly rapidly as far as what these, how usable these aircraft are over the next three, six, 12 months. I, this, the, the, the operating fleet is going to get very, very small very, very quickly. Well, and, and thinking about the effect on airlines like, like Aeroflot, you know, where the, basically a, a state airline state supported heavily state supported versus some of the smaller russian airlines that might not be as well supported where even if they you know had the inclination to say okay here are the planes back and and you know get planes the next time we can get planes that's obviously not going to happen thinking about what those airlines do, they're going to be much more heavily affected much more quickly absolutely you know i think you know i guess the question is does russia nationalize the fleet and do you then nationalize aspects of the industry itself to maintain a domestic network where effectively you you say, well, this is whatever the, the Russian equivalent of EAS is, essential air service for very, various communities. You know, that if, if a small airline doesn't operate it, you know, Aeroflot will step in because guess what? You also have the capacity that you were using overseas no longer available for that or no longer have access to that used on domestic operations. I mean, it, it's so interesting because the, the Russian domestic market is enormous. It was actually one of the most vibrant sort of post-pandemic like bright spots. They were actually above their 2019 traffic last summer. Yeah. Domestically. Yeah. And they reached it rather quickly. I mean, it, comparatively speaking, they they were the, I think, if not one of the first, the first to have a domestic market that was above pre-pandemic levels. And when I first saw those numbers, I was like, oh, that's incredible. And then you look at the growth. And in, you know, we touched on this kind of the beginning of our how new these aircraft are. These airlines have grown incredibly quickly. And very recently, they've grown incredibly quickly and developed a lot of capacity. And now all of that, I mean, basically all of the wide body capacity, nearly all of the wide body capacity is useless. Well, it's also geographically a, a massive country. Some of these domestic flights, they're they're eight hours and actually require some of these wide-body aircraft. Moscow to Vladivostok is a solid eight hours eastbound. So yeah, there, there are some routes that actually require these wide bodies, but by and large, uh, you're going to have quite the surplus. I mean, you're going to see you know, for the next couple of weeks a, a 350 on the, the St. Petersburg-Moscow route. Well, look, we, we had um, LA to Dallas on, 
<laughs> no triple sevens. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's something to be said. There's something to be said for that. Similar, but not the same. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 As I kind of play five dimensional chess around this in my own head, I do wonder. Russian aerospace is not without its ability to be self sufficient. There are extreme weaknesses in that self sufficiency, but. It's important to note that they have a long aviation history, a long operational history, a long history of being incredibly resourceful with very few resources. And at a time when the ability to actually design your own airplane is becoming a, a marginally more viable option. And we had the MC-21, the Yerkut MC-21, which is about the same size as a 737-900 and an, an A321-ish sized airplane that just got certified by the Russian authorities at the end of December. Notably, was certified with Pratt & Whitney engines, which are not going to be going into Russia anymore. And the Dubai Air Show in November, they actually, the aircraft they had there was called the MC-21-310. And the 310, the 10 in particular, signifies that it was an aircraft that had Russian engines. It's called, it was an engine called the PD-14. And I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the, the manufacturer of it because I will, I will butcher it terribly. But it's a, it's a Russian manufacturer under the United Engine Corporation brand, which kind of consolidated their operations. And it's effectively a, a Leap 1B, CFM Leap 1B engine, sort of geared turbofan generation technology engine made in Russia. And it's going to take them a long time to get up to any kind of rate with that. But that airplane, the 310, was a direct response to sanctions that started back in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea, when the, the Obama administration started putting restrictions on this. And that, that in turn caused them to have, have to essentially uncouple from Western manufacturers that helped bring these airplanes to life. I mean, we, with this incredible era of openness for the first 15 years of, of, of the century, where you had China, Russia, and uh, Europe and the United States and Brazil and Canada working with in those markets to bring those airplanes to life for the benefit of all commercial aviation. That's over now. So let's take that as a, as a pivot to discuss some of the effects on the OEMs themselves. Thinking about you know Airbus, Boeing, Embraer selling, designing, manufacturing aircraft with either Russian material or, or Russian personnel. And then, you know, kind of stepping back to, I mean, we mentioned Pratt & Whitney already with, they were going to engine the MC, MC-21. You have all of these other engine makers roles. You've got CFM, all of these engine makers that, that now can't send engines into Russia. How do the sanctions on Russia start to affect those companies? Yeah. So one of the big pieces of, of this is Russian is, is actually the, the biggest one of the biggest pieces of the Russian economy, which is their export of raw materials, in particular titanium and nickel. Titanium is a major part of large composite airplanes like the 350 and the 787, principally because of its ability to expand and contract in the same ways that carbon fiber does with different temperatures. It also prevents galvanic corrosion, which is corrosion that happens when you when you put two materials next to each other and an electric current is created, will actually begin to corrode, cause corrosion. And that happens when you put aluminum and, and carbon fiber next to each other. So Titanium is a major ingredient there. It's in fasteners, it's in landing gear, it's in engine casings. You know, that those huge beams you see in in, in landing gear are are typically made from titanium. 
and the engine casings, also titanium. I mean, this is there. It, it plays a huge role in the manufacture of airplanes. So, by the numbers, about you know, Russia provides about thirty-five percent of Boeing's titanium, uh, about sixty-plus percent of Airbus's, and one hundred percent of Embraer's. And so the need to have access to that titanium, which goes through a company called uh, VSMPO Avizma, which is a, a state-owned Russian company that does everything from taking the titanium ore and turning it into titanium sponge, and, and then the whole process of getting that through the industrial chain to a finished milled or rolled or finalized product to go on an airplane. And so- the key part of that, of course, is the is the finished piece of it because that's a there, there's an industrial component to that in terms of the presses that they're actually used in that process, which should be qualified and certified, which are hard to come by and it takes a while to switch. If there is one silver lining that has come from the pandemic, it's that Boeing and Airbus massively decreased the rate of production of their wide body aircraft, like the 350 and the 787. And in doing so, because of the long lead times for these parts, what you had was in you know, December of 2019, you know, the combined rate was somewhere between 24 and 25-ish airplanes per month between Boeing and Airbus for the 350 and the 787. Well, that they slammed on the brakes when the pandemic hit. And the catch-up in the supply chain Particularly, particularly on the titanium front, allowed them to actually build up a huge buffer as you know, the, as the train train cars piled up behind them, effectively. And so that was even after Boeing started an effort to stockpile titanium after the initial round of sanctions in 2014. So Boeing has a considerable stockpile of titanium. Airbus does two. Boeing actually announced that they are going to be. They're suspending purchases of Russian titanium, which is a very big deal. Which number one says how confident they are in their in their stockpile, and that they can they can do this. They actually have a joint venture, a fifty fifty joint venture with uh, VSMPO, which they re upped in November, which has been a huge part of their operation across all their airplanes. Airbus has not stopped purchasing titanium from Russia. I think that's that's notable and something that we need to watch. But uh, Embraer also continues. However, they do have a buffer there as well for for the E jets. One thing that, that we saw yesterday, so yesterday is March 8th, is the Kremlin came out and said it's going to be restricting some products and raw material, the export of those materials. We don't know what that means yet. It was a very vague announcement from, from the Kremlin, which sent everyone in the aerospace industry, you know, sort of poking their heads up being like, okay, tell me more. And the Kremlin has promised, I think they said within two to three days, they would actually have a list of restricted products that that weren't allowed to leave the country for national security reasons. Is that titanium? We don't know. There's a lot of folks who think it probably will be. If it is, the biggest effect is not going to be on the airframers. It's probably going to be on guys like the engine makers who rely heavily on on the titanium. Safran and CFM rely heavily on, on Russian titanium for components within the, the Leap engine, for example, which again is accelerating production right now, given the need for for uh, single aisle airplanes in at both Boeing and Airbus. It's the, they share an engine. Pratt Whitney, of course, is, is on the Embraer E2, the A220, and the A320 family at Airbus. And so we see these dynamics play out, but it is a huge, huge, huge watch item right now for the industry that, look, 
there was already going to be a, a supply chain crunch as the rates went up, given all the disruption from the pandemic and and working capital and and staffing and the ability to do this and actually provide those parts. So it was going to be rough before. We're going to see if, if Vladimir Putin really does have the ability to shut down the aerospace industry as something he he actually does. That was a a very thorough explanation of why I'm a little depressed about the future of aviation right now. It goes to how interconnected everything truly is. I mean, we talk about, you know, flying being the the actual travel of thing, you know, people to places being the thing that connects, but it it starts long, long before the plane ever leaves the ground. I mean, when you start talking about how these individual components, you know, may or may not be accessible, I mean, is there a way to pick up the slack? In theory, you know, I think we're gonna we're gonna find out. You know, certainly these buffers give a little bit of breathing room. There is domestic, and I say domestic, US domestic production of, of a lot of these parts and then the capabilities there. Notably, at the other end of the spectrum, not like the, the actual finalization for production, but like the, the actual processing of the raw materials, the US actually closed its last titanium sponge production facility a couple of years back. Uh, and I think it was just before the pandemic. It was in Henderson, Nevada, and that's over now. And so the U.S. has been relying heavily on places like like Japan for that capability. Whether we see them get back in the game, I think is, is we're going to find out in, in, in due course. I, I would imagine they probably will, given the strategic capability. And, and there was actually a request to, of the U.S. government to, to subsidize it, to keep it open as a strategic technology. And the government actually declined. And so it, the, the facility closed. But I think you're going to see you know supply chains going forward, particularly designed to look after the pandemic. For sure, but now we see this sort of fracturing of a, the global industry, which says the supply chains need to be just built in a different, more resilient way. Given the fact that this is not a market you're going to have access to, either as a consumer to fly to, or a lessor to lease to, or a manufacturer to 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 sell to, or uh, or source parts from. And that's a different way to think about aviation where after this like decade and a half or longer of incredible openness that we really enjoyed. And that's that's a honest to God tragedy because it meant that we would we would be together, we would be able to travel together. And look, I look the the, the core coming coming back full circle here, when I talked about my what I wrote back in college, my senior thesis, was the idea that travel is the last three feet, as Edward R. Murrow said. You know, it's the ability to shake someone's hand and look them in the eye. And that was what was so hard about the pandemic because we were all so separate. And this is just another reinforcement of that of that separateness that that uh, that in the past allowed us to be together. And where you where you weren't relying on you know Twitter messages or social media or TV or movies or whatever to understand another culture, you just you went there and you talked to people and you saw it with your own two eyes. And that incredible openness that we enjoyed in, in, in aviation over the first two decades of the 21st century, for at least the foreseeable future, is over. 
I don't think that we can go anywhere from there. So I think that's where we should leave it. Not a rosy picture by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly where we are now. We've been joined this week by John Ostrauer. He's the editor-in-chief of The Air Current. John, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, guys. Hey, thank you, John. raise the last of the future. Better days will be <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. This has been episode 154 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening.